Book Ten, Chapter Two of The Wings of the Dove. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. The Wings of the Dove by Henry James. He was to remain for several days under the deep impression of this inclusive passage, so luckily prolonged from moment to moment, but interrupted at its climax, as may be said, by the entrance of Aunt Maud, who found them standing together near the fire. The bearings of the colloquy, however, sharp as they were, were less sharp to his intelligence, strangely enough, than those of a talk with Mrs. Lowder alone, for which she soon gave him or for which perhaps rather Kate gave him, full occasion. What had happened on her at last joining them was to conduce, he could immediately see, to her desiring to have him to herself. Kate and he, no doubt, at the beginning of the door, had fallen apart with a certain suddenness, so that she had turned her hard, fine eyes from one to the other. But the effect of this lost itself, to his mind, the next minute, in the effect of his companion's rare alertness. She instantly spoke to her aunt of what had first been uppermost for herself, inviting her thereby intimately to join them, and doing it the more happily also, no doubt, because the fact she resentfully named gave her ample support. Had you quite understood, my dear, that it's full three weeks? and she effaced herself as if to leave Mrs. Lowder to deal with her own point of view with this extravagance. Densher, of course, straightway noted that his cue for the protection of Kate was to make, no less, all of it he could, and their tracks, as he might have said, were fairly covered by the time their hostess had taken afresh, on his renewed admission, the measure of his scant eagerness. Kate had moved away as if no great showing were needed for her personal situation to be seen as delicate. She had been entertaining their visitor on her aunt's behalf, a visitor she had been at one time suspected of favoring too much, and who now came back to them as the stricken suitor of another person. It wasn't that the fate of the other person, her exquisite friend, didn't, in its tragic turn, also concern herself. It was only that her acceptance of Mr. Densher as a source of information could scarcely help having an awkwardness. She invented the awkwardness under Densher's eyes, and he marveled on his side at the instant creation. It served her as the fine cloud that hangs about a goddess in an epic, and the young man was but vaguely to know at what point of the rest of his visit she had, for consideration, melted into it and out of sight. He was taken up promptly with another matter, the truth of the remarkable difference, neither more nor less, that the events of Venice had introduced into his relation with Aunt Maud, and that these weeks of their separation had caused quite richly to ripen for him. She had not sat down to her tea-table before he felt himself on terms with her that were absolutely new, nor would she press on him a second cup without her seeming herself, and quite wittingly, so to define and establish them. She regretted, but she quite understood, that what was taking place had obliged him to hang off. They had, after hearing of him from poor Susan as gone, been hoping for an early sight of him, 
they would have been interested, naturally, in his arriving straight from the scene. Yet she needed no reminder that the scene precisely by which she meant the tragedy that had so detained and absorbed him, the memory, the shadow, the sorrow of it, was what marked him for unsociability. She thus presented him to himself, as it were, in the guise in which she had now adopted him, and it was the element of truth in the character that he found himself, for his own part, adopting. She treated him as blighted and ravaged, as frustrate and already bereft, and for him to feel that this opened for him a new chapter of frankness with her, he scarce had also to perceive how it smoothed his approaches to Kate. It made the latter accessible, as she hadn't yet begun to be. It set up for him at Lancaster Gate an association positively hostile to any other legend. It was quickly vivid to him that, were he minded, he could work this association. He had but to use the house freely for his prescribed attitude, and he need hardly ever be out of it. Stranger than anything, moreover, was to be the way that by the end of the week he stood convicted to his own sense of a surrender to Mrs. Lauder's view. He had somehow met it at a point that had brought him on, brought him on a distance that he couldn't again retrace. He had private hours of wondering what had become of his sincerity. He had others of simply reflecting that he had it all in use. His only want of candor was Aunt Maud's wealth of sentiment. She was hugely sentimental, and the worst he did was to take it from her. He wasn't so himself, everything was too real. But it was nonetheless not false that he had been through a mill. It was in particular not false, for instance, that when she said to him on the Sunday almost cozily from her sofa behind the tea, I want you not to doubt, you poor dear, that I'm with you to the end. His meeting her halfway had been the only course open to him. She was with him to the end, or she might be, in a way Kate wasn't, and even if it literally made her society meanwhile more soothing, he must just brush away the question of why it shouldn't. Was he professing to her in any degree the possession of an after-sense that wasn't real? How in the world could he, when his after-sense, day by day, was his greatest reality? Such only was at bottom what there was between them, and two or three times over it made the hour pass. These were occasions, two and a scrap, on which he had come and gone without mention of Kate. Now that almost as never yet he had license to ask for her, the queer turn of their affair made it a false note. It was another queer turn, that when he talked with Aunt Maud about Milly, nothing else seemed to come up. He called upon her almost avowedly for that purpose, and it was the queerest turn of all that the state of his nerves should require it. He liked her better. She was really behaving, he had occasion to say to himself, as if he liked her best. The thing was absolutely that she met him halfway. Nothing could have been broader than her vision, than her loquacity, than her sympathy. It appeared to gratify, to satisfy her to see him as he was. That, too, had its effect. It was all, of course, the last thing that could have seemed on the cards, 
a change by which he was completely free with this lady, and it wouldn't indeed have come about if, for another monstrosity, he hadn't ceased to be free with Kate. Thus it was that on the third time, in especial of being alone with her, he found himself uttering to the elder woman what had been impossible of utterance to the younger. Mrs. Lauder gave him, in fact, on the ground of what he must keep from her, but one easy moment. That was when, on the first Sunday, after Kate had suppressed herself, she referred to her regret that he mightn't have stayed to the end. He found his reason difficult to give her, but she came, after all, to his help. You simply couldn't stand it? I simply couldn't stand it. Besides, you see... But he paused. Besides what? He had been going to say more, then he saw dangers. Luckily, however, she had again assisted him. Besides, oh, I know, men haven't, in many relations, the courage of women. They haven't the courage of women. Kate or I would have stayed, she declared, if we hadn't come away for the special reason that you so frankly appreciated. Densher had said nothing about his appreciation. Hadn't his behavior since the hour itself sufficiently shown it? But he presently said he couldn't help going so far. I don't doubt, certainly, that Miss Croy would have stayed. And he saw again into the bargain what a marvel was Susan Shepherd. She did nothing but protect him. She had done nothing but keep it up. In copious communication with the friend of her youth, she had yet, it was plain, favored this lady with nothing that compromised him. Milly's act of renouncement she had described but as a change for the worse. She had mentioned Lord Mark's descent, as even without her it might be known, so that she mustn't appear to conceal it. But she had suppressed explanations and connections, and, indeed, for all he knew, blessed Puritan soul had invented commendable fictions. Thus it was absolutely that he was at his ease. Thus it was, shaking forever in the unrest that didn't stop his crossed leg, he leaned back in deep yellow satin chairs and took such comfort as came. She asked, it was true, Aunt Maud, questions that Kate hadn't, but this was just the difference, that from her he positively liked them, he had taken with himself on leaving Venice the resolution to regard Milly as already dead to him, that being for his spirit the only thinkable way to pass the time of waiting. He had left her because it was what suited her, and it wasn't for him to go, as they said in America, behind this, which imposed on him but the sharper need to arrange himself with his interval. Suspense was the ugliest ache to him and he would have nothing to do with it. The last thing he wished was to be unconscious of her. What he wished to ignore was her own consciousness, tortured, for all he knew, crucified by its pain. Knowingly to hang about in London while the pain went on, what would that do but make his days impossible? His scheme was accordingly to convince himself, and by some art about which he was vague, that the tense of waiting had passed. What, in fact, he restlessly reflected, have I any further to do with it? 
Let me assume the thing actually over, as it at any moment may be, and I become good again for something, at least to somebody. I'm good, as it is, for nothing to anybody, least of all to her. He consequently tried, so far as shutting his eyes and stalking grimly about was a trial. But his plan was carried out, it may well be guessed, neither with marked success nor with marked consistency. The days, whether lapsing or lingering, were a stiff reality. The suppression of anxiety was a thin idea. The taste of life itself was the taste of suspense. That he was waiting was, in short, at the bottom of everything, and it required no great sifting presently to feel that if he took so much more, as he called it, to Mrs. Louder, this was just for that reason. She helped him to hold out, all the while that she was subtle enough, and he could see her divine it as what he wanted, not to insist on the actuality of their tension. His nearest approach to success was thus in being good for something to Aunt Maud, in default of anyone better. Her company eased his nerves even while they pretended together that they had seen their tragedy out. They spoke of the dying girl in the past tense. They said no worse of her than she had been stupendous. On the other hand, however, and this was what wasn't for Densher pure peace, they insisted enough that stupendous was the word. It was the thing, this recognition, that kept him most quiet. He came to it with her repeatedly, talking about it against time, and in particular, we have noted, speaking of his supreme personal impression as he hadn't spoken to Kate. It was almost as if she herself enjoyed the perfection of the pathos. She sat there before the scene, as he couldn't help giving it out to her, very much as a stout citizen's wife might have sat during a play that made people cry, in the pit or the family circle. What most deeply stirred her was the way the poor girl must have wanted to live. Ah, yes, indeed, she did, she did. Why, in pity, shouldn't she, with everything to fill her world? The mere money of her, the darling, if it isn't too disgusting at such a time to mention that. Aunt Maud mentioned it, and Densher quite understood, but as fairly giving poetry to the life Milly clung to, a view of the might-have-been before which the good lady was hushed anew to tears. She had had her own vision of these possibilities, and her own social use for them, and since Milly's spirit had been after all so at one with her about them, what was the cruelty of the event but a cruelty of a sort to herself? That came out when he named, as the horrible thing to know, the fact of their young friend's unapproachable terror of the end. Keep it down, though she would. Coming out, therefore, often, since in so naming he found the strangest of reliefs, he allowed it all its vividness, as if on the principle of his not at least spiritually shirking. Milly had held with passion to her dream of a future, and she was separated from it, not shrieking indeed, but grimly, awfully silent, as one might imagine some noble young victim of the scaffold in the French Revolution, separated at the prison door from some object clutched for resistance. Densher, in a cold moment, so pictured the case for Mrs. Louder, 
but no moment cold enough had yet come to make him so picture it to Kate. And it was the front so presented that had been in Milly heroic. Presented with the highest heroism, Aunt Maud by this time knew on the occasion of his taking leave of her. He had let her know, absolutely for the girl's glory, how he had been received on that occasion, with a positive effect, since she was indeed so perfectly the princess that Mrs. Stringham always called her, of princely state. Before the fire in the great room that was all aberesques and cherubs, all gaiety and gilt, and that was warm at that hour, too, with a wealth of autumn sun, the state in question had been maintained, and the situation, well, Densher said for the convenience of exquisite London gossip, sublime. The gossip, for it came to as much as Lancaster Gate, wasn't the less exquisite for his use of the silver veil, nor, on the other hand, was the veil, so touched, too much drawn aside. He himself, for that matter, took in the scene again at moments as from the page of a book. He saw a young man, far off and in a relation inconceivable, saw him hushed, passive, staying his breath, but half understanding, yet dimly conscious of something immense, and holding himself painfully together not to lose it. The young man at these moments so seen was too distant and too strange for the right identity, and yet, outside, afterwards, it was his own face Densher had known. He had known then, at the same time, that the young man had been conscious of, and he was to measure after that, day by day, how little he had lost. At present, there with Mrs. Lowder, he knew he had gathered all that passed between them mutely, as in the intervals of their associated gaze they exchanged looks of intelligence. This was as far as association could go, but it was far enough when she knew the essence. The essence was that something had happened to him too beautiful and too sacred to describe. He had been, to his recovered sense, forgiven, dedicated, blessed, but this he couldn't coherently express. It would have required an explanation, fatal to Mrs. Lowder's faith in him, of the nature of Milly's wrong. So, as to the wonderful scene, they just stood at the door. They had the sense of the presence within. They felt the charged stillness, after which, their association deepened by it, they turned together away. That itself, indeed, for our restless friend, became, by the end of the week, the very principle of reaction. So that he woke up one morning with such a sense of having played a part as he needed self-respect to gainsay. He hadn't in the least stated at Lancaster Gate that, as a haunted man, a man haunted with a memory, he was harmless. But the degree to which Mrs. Lowder accepted, admired, and explained his new aspect laid upon him practically the weight of a declaration. What he hadn't in the least stated her own manner was perpetually stating, it was as haunted and harmless, that she was constantly putting him down. There offered itself, however, to his purpose such an element as plain honesty, and he had embraced, by the time he dressed, his proper corrective. They were on the edge of Christmas, but Christmas this year was, as in the London of so many other years, disconcertingly mild. The still air was soft, the thick light was gray, the great town looked empty, 
and in the park, where the grass was green, where the sheep browsed, where the birds multitudinously twittered, the straight walks lent themselves to slowness and the dim vistas to privacy. He held it fast this morning till he had got out, his sacrifice to honor, and then went with it to the nearest post office and fixed it fast in a telegram, thinking of it, moreover, as a sacrifice, only because he had, for reasons, felt it as an effort. Its character of effort it would owe to Kate's expected resistance, not less probable than on the occasion of past appeals, which was precisely why he, perhaps innocently, made his telegram persuasive. It had, as a recall of tender hours, to be, for the young woman at the counter, a trifle cryptic, but there was a good deal of it in one way and another, representing as it did a rich impulse and costing him a couple of shillings. There was also a moment later on that day when, in the park, as he measured watchfully one of their old alleys, he might have been supposed by a cynical critic to be reckoning his chance of getting his money back. He was waiting, but he had waited of old. Lancaster Gate as a danger was practically at hand but she had risked that danger before. Besides, it was smaller now, with the queer turn of their affair, in spite of which, indeed, he was graver as he lingered and looked out. Kate came at last by the way he had thought least likely, came as if she had started from the marble arch, but her advent was response, that was the great matter. Response, marked in her face, was agreeable to him, even after Aunt Maud's responses, as nothing had been since his return to London. She had not, it was true, answered his wire, and he had begun to fear, as she was late, that with the instinct of what he might be again intending to press upon her, she had decided, though not with ease, to deprive him of his chance. He would have, of course, she knew, other chances, but she perhaps saw the present as offering her special danger. This, in fact, Densher could himself feel, was exactly why he had so prepared it, and he had rejoiced, even while he waited, in all that the conditions had to say to him of their simpler and better time. The shortest day of the year, though it might be, it was, in the same place, by a whim of the weather, almost as much to their purpose as the days of sunny afternoons when they had taken their first trysts. This and that tree within sight on the grass stretched bare boughs over the couple of chairs in which they had sat of old and in which, for they really could sit down again, they might recover the clearness of their prime. It was to all intents, however, that this very reference that showed itself in Kate's face as, with her swift motion, she came toward him. It helped him, her swift motion, when it finally brought her nearer, helped him, for that matter, at first, if only by showing him afresh how terribly well she looked. It had been all along, he certainly remembered, a phenomenon of no rarity that he had felt her, at particular moments, handsomer than ever before. One of these, for instance, being still present to him as her entrance, under her aunt's eyes, at Lancaster Gate, the day of his dinner there after his return from America. And another, her aspect on the same spot two Sundays ago, the light in which she struck the eyes he had brought back from Venice. In the course of a minute or two now he got, as he had got at the other times, his apprehension of the special stamp 
of the fortune of the moment. Whatever it had been determined by as the different hours recurring to him, it took on at present a prompt connection with an effect produced for him, in truth, more than once during the past week, only now much intensified. This effect he had already noted and named. It was that of the attitude assumed by his friend in the presence of the degree of response on his part to Mrs. Lauder's welcome which she couldn't possibly have failed to notice. She had noticed it, and she had beautifully shown him so, wearing in its honor the finest shade of studied serenity, a shade almost of gaiety over the workings of time. Everything, of course, was relative with the shadow they were living under, but her condemnation of the way in which he now, for confidence, distinguished Aunt Maud, had almost the note of cheer. She had so, by her own air, consecrated the distinction, individuous in respect to herself though it might be, and nothing, really, more than this demonstration could have given him had he still wanted it the measure of her superiority. It was doubtless for that matter the superiority alone that on the winter noon gave smooth decision to her step and charming courage to her eyes, a courage that deepened in them when he had presently got to what he did want. He had delayed after she had joined him not much more than long enough for him to say to her, drawing her hand into his arm and turning off where they had turned of old, that he wouldn't pretend he hadn't lately had moments of not quite believing he should ever again be so happy. She answered, passing over the reasons, whatever they had been, of his doubt, that her own belief was in high happiness for them if they would only have patience, though nothing at the same time could be dearer than his idea for their walk. It was only make-believe, of course, with what had taken place for them, that they couldn't meet at home, she spoke of their opportunities as suffering at no point. He had, at any rate, soon let her know that he wished the present one to suffer at none, and in a quiet spot, beneath a great wintry tree, he let his entreaty come sharp. We've played our dreadful game, and we've lost. We owe it to ourselves, we owe it to our feeling for ourselves and for each other, not to wait another day. Our marriage will, fundamentally, somehow, don't you see, right everything that's wrong, and I can't express to you my impatience. We've only to announce it, and it takes off the weight. To announce it? Kate asked. She spoke as if not understanding, though she had listened to him without confusion. To accomplish it, then, tomorrow, if you will, do it, and announce it as done. That's the least part of it. After it, nothing will matter. We shall be so right, he said, that we shall be strong. We shall only wonder at our past fear. It will seem an ugly madness. It will seem a bad dream. She looked at him without flinching, with the look she had brought at his call. But he felt now the strange chill of her brightness. My dear man, what has happened to you? Well, that I can bear it no longer. That's simply what has happened. Something has snapped, has broken in me, and here I am. It's as I am that you must have me. He saw her try for a time to appear to consider it, but he saw her also not consider it. Yet he saw her, felt her further, he heard her, with her clear voice, 
try to be intensely kind with him. I don't see, you know, what has changed. She had a large, strange smile. We've been going on together so well, and you suddenly desert me? It made him helplessly gaze. You call it so well. You've touches upon my soul. I call it perfect, from my original point of view. I'm just where I was, and you must give me some better reason than you do, my dear, for your not being. It seems to me, she continued, that we're only right as to what has been between us so long as we do wait. I don't think we wish to have behaved like fools. He took in while she talked her imperturbable consistency, which it was quietly, queerly hopeless to see her stand there and breathe into their mild remembering air. He had brought her there to be moved, and she was only immovable, which was not, moreover, either, because she didn't understand. She understood everything, and things he refused to, and she had reasons, deep down, the sense of which nearly sickened him. She had, too, again most of all her strange, significant smile. Of course, if it's that you really know something. It was quite conceivable and possible to her. He could see that he did. But he didn't even know what she meant, and he only looked at her in gloom. His gloom, however, didn't upset her. You do, I believe, only you've a delicacy about saying it. Your delicacy to me, my dear, is a scruple too much. I should have no delicacy in hearing it, so that if you can tell me, you know. Well, he asked, as she still kept what depended on it. Why, then, I'll do what you want. We needn't, I grant you, in that case, wait, and I can see what you mean by thinking it nicer of us not to. I don't even ask you, she continued, for a proof. I'm content with your moral certainty. By this time it had come over him. It had the force of a rush. The point she made was clear, as clear as that the blood, while she recognized it, mantled in his face. I know nothing whatever. You've not an idea? I've not an idea. I'd consent, she said. I'd announce it tomorrow, today. I'd go home this moment and announce it to Aunt Maud for an idea. I mean an idea straight from you. I mean as your own, given me in good faith. There, my dear, and she smiled again, I call that really meeting you. If it was, then, what she called it, it disposed of his appeal, and he could but stand there with his wasted passion, for it was in high passion that he had from the morning acted in his face. She made it all out, bent upon her, the idea he didn't have, that the idea he had, and his failure of insistence when it brought up that challenge, and his sense of her personal presence, and his horror, almost, of her lucidity. They made in him a mixture that might have been rage, but that was turning quickly to mere cold thought, thought which led to something else and was like a new dim dawn. It affected her then, and she had one of the impulses, in all sincerity, that had before this between them saved their position. When she had come nearer to him, when, putting her hand upon him, she made him sink with her, as she leaned to him into their old pair of chairs, 
She prevented irresistibly, she forestalled, the waste of his passion. She had an advantage with his passion now. End of Book 10, Chapter 2 Recording by Roger Moline